If you'll open with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 11. Uh, just to recap um, where we are in the book of 1 Samuel. So we're in the middle of a section which describes the rise of the monarchy in Israel. And uh, in the last two chapters, we've seen this private and public calling of Saul as king. So um, in chapter 9, Saul went out looking for um, his father's lost donkeys, found the prophet Samuel, who anointed him king. Surprise, surprise. Um, Samuel gave Saul some signs that were just for Saul to sort of authenticate that this uh, was indeed Um, God's calling to him that he would, in fact, be king. But Saul goes home, doesn't tell anybody about this. And then in chapter um, 10, we see Saul being uh, publicly proclaimed king uh, with this ceremony by which um, uh, all the people of Israel gather. uh, The lot is broken out to narrow down the tribe. Uh, It picks the tribe of Benjamin, narrow down the clan, and then narrow down the specific person within the clan, and the lot falls to Saul. And chapter 10 ends with Saul being um, proclaimed uh, king over Israel, people shouting, long live the king, but also some worthless fellows uh, despising his kingship and saying, um, how can uh, this man save us? So with that, um, uh, let's uh, turn to um, chapter 11. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days' respite, that we might send messengers throughout all the territory of Israel. Then, if there's no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, And all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so it shall be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have deliverance. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. 
And the next day Saul put the people in three companies. They came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two men of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring them in, that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Let's pray. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, we do come this day to worship you, to acknowledge your lordship over us, that you are our king. We thank you for this record of your great deliverance over your people Israel. And in this season of the year, we're continually reminded of your greatest victory over death and over sin through the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ, and his resurrection from the dead. And that we, uh, who are united to him, also have uh, the hope of the resurrection of our physical bodies um, from uh, sin and death and that we will have an eternal life in your heavenly kingdom. We thank you for your wise and just rule over us now. Forgive us uh, the ways that we rebel against you, that we uh, look to make alliances with the world around us, and the values of the culture around us. For we ask that even now you would be shaping us to be um, the citizens of your holy kingdom. Not by our own power, but the power of your Son, Jesus Christ, working in and through us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. So uh, last time we, we saw the um, Israel getting their first king. They're shouting, long live the king. And then chapter 11 starts with a new king appearing on the scene. So the text instantly turns from the public selection of Israel's first king to the arrival of the Ammonite king Nahash. So what do we learn with, from this um, episode of Nahash Um, and the people of uh, Jabesh-Gilead. What strikes you about this encounter between Nahash the Ammonite and this uh, Israelite city on the far side of the Jordan? They're willing to, uh, they're very interested in making a treaty to um, stop fighting. I'll give you a little sense that there's some indications that this might have been going on for a while. So um, it's, uh, there's, there's one way to look at this, and Jabesh Gilead is the last holdout. And so rather than um, suffer defeat in battle, they're 
they're ready to make peace with Nahash. But they're ready to make a treaty. That much is clear. Um, I don't know if it's custom or not, but you can see, um, uh, again, if Jabesh Gilead's been holding out for a long time, um, and I'll, I'll read you something in a second that sort of indicates that they're the last stronghold. Um, you know, it, it could be wisdom on his part, because frankly, he doesn't believe anybody's going to come save them. So, what, seven more days? In seven more days, they said they're going to agree to it. So I can take the city without a battle. Um, so I think it's um, partly showing his confidence in that, um, sure, <laughs> who's going to save you, really? You're alone. Um, so it, it could be on his part um, a strategy to, to show them how isolated they really are, that there will be no deliverer. What else would you say about our friend Nahash here. Yeah, and to think about um, it, it's it's cruelty, but it's also um, lifelong subservience. I mean, if you think in terms of battle, you hold your shield with your left hand, so you need your right eye to be able to see to fight. You take out somebody's right eye. You know, there's, you know, they're unable to fight in a conventional sense. Um, so, I mean, it's it's cruel, it's excessive, but it's also rendering the people um, completely militarily subservient. That he's reducing them to they are not going to be able to fight uh, for themselves. I think he's serious. And let me just, so um, with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we found the, uh, a really old text of First Samuel. And it actually has this added paragraph that doesn't appear in any of our Bibles. Um, so, um, and this just gives us a little more detail. So, um, chapter 11 in one of the Dead Sea Scrolls would start this way. Now Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, had been oppressing the Gadites and Reubenites grievously, gouging out the right eye of each of them and allowing Israel no deliverer. So he is already doing this. Um, so um, no men of the Israelites who were across the Jordan remained whose right eye Nahash, king of the Ammonites, had not gouged out. But several thousand men had escaped from the Ammonites and entered into Jabesh Gilead. So these, if we sort of take that as um, an additional account, he's already doing this. 
And he's coming to these guys saying, yeah, you can make a treaty, but, but don't think you get to keep your right eye because of the treaty. So, um, as striking and as excessively cruel as we think it might be, and, and even counterproductive, um, uh, you know, that idea of allowing them no deliverer, um, that there's not going to be anyone rising up among you to fight off my rule. We're not going to have a Gideon. We're not going to have a Jephthah. Um, we're not going to have an Othniel. There's not going to be a deliverer rising up among you. Or if there is, he's going to be lefty. So they're, they're asking for help. So the people are, all the people on the, the far side of the Jordan is who's, who, so we're talking about the boundaries of the kingdom. So they're now appealing to the people, um, to the other tribes, um, nine and a half tribes. <laughs> but no, because it's the people on the, um, you know, the other nine and a half tribes on the other side of the Jordan all have their eyes. So, so Benjamin, Judah, none of them are affected. This is just um, the Reubenites and, and Gad. So two tribes have been being oppressed by the Ammonites. But, uh, but that's something important to keep in mind. They've been fighting the Ammonites and losing their right eyes, but they've been alone. Um, the rest of Israel has not come to their aid um, before this moment. So they're appealing across the Jordan to the people who are sort of protected um, within the main body of Israel. Well, these tribes were given permission not to go across the Jordan. They really weren't I don't know if it's the lack of obedience or just it's it's um, strictly um, um, uh, in, in terms of it, yeah geographic that they are on the outside and you know and they're cut off by this river so they've chosen to I mean maybe that's sort of showing the lack of wisdom in their choice they've chosen this land on the other side of the river. Um, they thought it was a good land. It was a good land. They're thriving there, but it leaves them vulnerable to any kind of attack because they are cut off from the rest of their tribes. So they negotiate the seven-day respite, um, uh, send messengers. So chapter 10 describes Saul being made king. What does the first part of chapter 11 reveal about um, Saul's kingdom? So, let's move from what the Ammonites are doing. So, what does this tell us about the state of the kingdom of Israel at this moment? Yeah, in what way is it nascent? Okay, what what way shows he's not full-time on kingdom here? Yeah, he's he's the farmer king. (laughs) Yeah, so we don't, you know, he's he's king, he returns to his his home, but, you know, he's not, you know, sitting on a throne doing kingly stuff. He's he's farming. What else would you say about um, uh, our kingdom of Israel at this moment? 
why? There's no unity here. Um, here these things are happening to two tribes. And again, it sort of um, uh, you know, seems like it might have been happening for a while. And yet... Yeah, and we'll get to the drastic response in a moment. But yeah, he's got to resort to this um, very uh, extreme form of message to, to make the people... And I, I think it's important it says... Um, to that Israel um, comes out, where is it? They come out as one man in verse at the end of verse seven. So I, I think you're absolutely right to to sort of emphasize this as a unifying event that these people have not been unified previously, but now um, it, that we're, we're seeing the process by which they're being um, unified under this king, made one. Mike. Yeah, he threatens their oxen rather than them. <laughs> we'll get to that in a second. Let's hold on that, but let's uh, let's. Uh, get back. So we have a king who's plowing his field. Um, we've got a kingdom that doesn't seem very unified. What else would you say about the kingdom at this moment? They're what? They're weepers. They're crying. Mary. Yeah, that their first response is weeping and loud wailing. Anything else we want to say about? I mean, notice, um, so he's a farmer, he's farming, he's not doing kingly things. It doesn't say the messengers are sent specifically to him. Their messengers are being sent from Jabesh Gilead throughout Israel. So there's, um, there's not an acknowledgement, really, from Jabesh Gilead, that, or recognition, at least, that Saul's king. So we've had a king elected, but there's no sense yet of... Yo, that he's the buck stops here guy. That this is all right. Trouble. You go to you go to Saul. He's the king. They're sending out messengers through all Israel, and it you know as the text describes it, it's when they come to his town that's when Saul finds out about it. You know they're on their normal progress throughout the land of Israel, delivering this message, and that's at the moment at which um, Saul hears of this. So it's. He's not yet um, recognized in certain ways as the king. Yeah, that they're coming to this particular Gibeah, which is um, a Benjamite town. And the location here, um, we'll say something about the location in a moment, but there's... There's sort of a parallel story that this one is mirroring that we'll turn to in a moment. But so Gibeah, the fact that it, you know, they're making sure you know which Gibeah it is because um, that particular Gibeah has some associations um, that are going to come up in this episode. So we have um, a farmer kingdom. We've got a kingdom where the borders are still exposed to these kinds of outside predations. It's, it's a, not a unified kingdom. And Saul isn't really um, sought out as um, 
the, the man in authority. You have this general appeal to all Israel to come to their aid. So the messengers come and we have Saul's response. So what do we make of Saul's reaction to this news and his response to the message, to the message brought by the messengers? Maybe so. So it, maybe it's it's saying he's maybe plowing is um, maybe it, it's a sign that he's abdicated his duties. Well, I think his anger is probably placed in several different places. Probably angry at the Probably also angry at the people that are really up against the cowards and weeping and wailing. Okay, so maybe some of his anger is because uh, Jabesh Gilead um, is now ready to to surrender rather than give up. There's an interesting, uh, I mean, to, to sort of think about um, in verse um, 10, who are the men of Jabesh Gilead talking to when they say, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. Um, it's Who are they talking to? Um, is that in response to the messengers sent by Saul? Um, so are they surrendering? I mean, that is surrender language. Are they surrendering in Saul to Saul? Is it, you know, do we've got a line or something missing that this is the message they sent back to um, Nahash to sort of put them at ease? Tomorrow we're going to come out and surrender to you, so it's a trick. But, it, you know, to go on with, with um, your point, Doug, I mean, if, it's, if there is some kind of tension between or frustration between Saul and the people of Jabesh Gilead, then that helps make that verse uh, a little clearer, you know, um, to sort of see that, Maybe he's mad that they they haven't resorted to him, or maybe they've um, you know as Jerry was talking about earlier, you know maybe this is a sign they've cut themselves off from Israel. Um, that this is showing um, part of the sinfulness of their choice to settle on the far side of the Jordan, and they've not acknowledged Saul as king. Sure. Yeah, and I think that's the really important thing as we think about this battle um, under you know Israel's first battle under a king that we see God not saying, all right, y'all wanted a king, you're on your own. Um, God is showing that he's still on the side of Israel. He's still going to win them the battle, except now he's going to win the battle through this, uh, the human leadership of this king. And it's God's spirit that's empowering Saul to act. And Saul acknowledges that. 
um, at the end of the passage. He says, you know, it's God that's given us this victory. It's, you know, he's not claiming personal responsibility for the events of this day. Um, our passage is making it clear to us that he's the, it's God's spirit that's empowering Saul to react in certain ways. And at the end of it, Saul is turning around and giving that credit back to God. He's not saying, I won the battle. He's saying, God's given us the victory on this particular day. God saved us. I haven't saved you. Oh, I saw another hand. But... Here. <laughs> that he's um, rushing things, this sort of um, slaughtering oxen on the spot, sending it out. Uh, what do we do with this? I mean, can you imagine the FedEx guy showing up the door? Ding dong! <laughs> Piece of an ox. Or maybe some of you be like, oh, free me! And I'm glad you brought up the um, the concubine uh, incident. So here we have Saul um, cutting up oxen and sending them out to all Israel as a form of a message. In Gibeah, in Judges, a Levite man had come, and the Benjamite men in or, or some Benjamite men in Gibeah came and first wanted to have sex with him and when he refused and threw out his concubine they spent a night raping her leaving her for dead on the guy's on the Levite's doorstep he then cuts her up and sends the pieces to all the other 12 tribes who come back they, um, so this is from Judges um, chapter 20. So, uh, well, I'll start at the end of chapter 19, and just to read you some of this. Um, and her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of his house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying on the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife. And taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, Such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead, and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. And the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. And then so they go back to the men of Benjamin, say, you know, bring out the people responsible for this. Benjamin refuses, and then you have this basic civil war where the other 11 tribes almost completely wipe out the tribe of Benjamin, all because of actions at Gibeah. And now we're back at Gibeah with a Benjamite, Saul, Israel's first king, 
in turn taking a, a yoke of oxen, dividing them into pieces, sitting them out to all Israel, that Israel will gather as one man, but now under Saul, a Benjamite, um, to fight uh, as the whole nation of Israel against an outside enemy. Uh, the, I mean, the parallels between those two texts um, are, are really striking. Uh, and I think it's really giving us a picture of, um, I mean, to think of this as a redemptive sort of moment. That this tribe um, that had been so horrible that the other tribes were about to wipe them off the face of the earth is now the one bringing all the tribes together under this new king who is going to be fighting um, uh, through the power and spirit of God. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a good question if how much of the story of the judges, of knowledge of those stories. I, I think, I mean, the author of our text, I think, is certainly painting it clear enough that he knows his audience is going to be able to make the connections between you know, the first set of events at Gibeah and the second set of events at Gibeah. message um, you know if I you know you, you get the dead fish in the mail from the mobster you know who you gonna fear the mobster um, you get the dead ox from from Saul the people are filled with the dread of the Lord so I mean they're responding to it not as boy we've got this nut job as king who's like slaughtering oxen and he's going to kill my oxen if I don't come out I mean there is a there is some spiritual side to their response. They're taking this as a message, not just from Saul, but Saul as God's representative. Yeah, I think that that action is to, at that moment, um, you know, to see um, the kingdom coming together. I mean, it's one thing to declare, you know, Saul's king. Oh, really? (laughs) Now we're seeing Saul become king actually. you know, there, there are still holdouts, there are people resistant. Um, this is the, uh, the unifying moment. They come out 
They respond to Saul's call. They win this great battle. You know, they're slaughtering Ammonites from, you know, the, it says they attacked during the morning watch. Um, that's 2 to 6. So, you know, they're going from between 2 to 6 in the morning to the heat of the day. That's a lot of Ammonites getting whacked in that period. I mean, that's a pretty bloody battle. And that's, it's that act that suddenly we have Saul, in a sense, being made king a third time. You know, verse 15, So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. He's being made king once again. Mary. And that they go to him and say, you know, they resort to him saying, all right, who objected to Saul's kingship? Come on, bring him out. Let's kill him. I mean, it's, it's really odd how he sort of just sort of pops up in the story at this moment. And that's going to be the story of Saul and Samuel's relationship. Samuel's going to keep sort of popping up at, for Saul's perspective in opportune moments. Um, here he's popping up. The people are going to him and saying... So, again, to sort of think of this, um, to go back to the word um, Mike used of nascent, um, you know, they still have their former judge is still living. Um, Their prophet judge, Samuel, is still there. But now they have a king and, you know, learning to slide off the judgeship of Samuel and put on the king. So um, there might be still some blurring of the lines of authority between them. And we're certainly going to see that in chapter 12 with this, uh, once again, Samuel addressing the people and going through this process of making Saul king, uh, a ceremonial process of making Saul king. I think it's important, too, to remember that while the sequence of events is the messenger king told Saul And in that moment, he really sounds like, uh, again, to go back to Judges, a super judge. I mean, if you went back to look at um, Judges, um, uh, we won't turn there, but um, like the story of Samson in uh, chapter 14, or Othniel in Judges 3.10, Gideon in 6.34, Jephthah in Judges 11.29, their start of their judge is the Spirit of God coming upon them, and then they go out and deliver Israel. So Saul is really being presented as um, a super judge, as a king. He's he's coming to the kingship in the same way that other people had entered the judgeship. The spirit of God coming upon him and then he being empowered to go out and save the people. Uh, 
quick action. I think, I think it's good that it's quick action because the days are ticking away and try to muster a bunch of people whose source they're probably you know, getting rusty in one of their homes. Uh, it was good that he acted quickly, but it was all because of uh, motivation. And then when he completes this, you know, he gives the credit to God and he even shows God's attribute of forgiveness by not, you know, from the people that had spoken out against him earlier. So it's like, in this case, the Lord leading Saul, Saul did everything like clockwork uh, and uh, saved, saved Israel. Yeah, and we see a similar story with this um, the, the sort of forgiveness to one's, uh, I mean, really political opponents. Um, and there are plenty of instances of someone, you know, coming to into authority, and you know, their first action is, you know, wiping out <laughs> anybody, uh, you know, any threat to their rule, you know, any competing forces. And he doesn't do that, and we see David doesn't do that. Um, you know, there are people encouraging him to like take out the rest of Saul's family, and he's like, no. You know, this is we're not going to have these political acts of vengeance. And I think it's instructive for us to see Saul at this moment respond this way. Um, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Another thing that impresses me about this is that the messenger did not have the internet to get the message out in seven days. In seven days, the deliverer had to come or they were going to have their eyes cast out. And Israel was a very large territory at that time. And so, we're getting to Saul, and for him to assemble 300,000 men, you assume that somehow or other than Saul's word, from wherever he was, traveled rapidly throughout all the rest of Israel, got everybody back together, and marched up to take the Amalek. All of this happened in seven days. Yeah. That's extraordinary. Yeah, and to, to think of the rapid, uh, rapid response, um, you know, there, uh, you know, and we, it's plural, so there are multiple messengers, so they're sending people throughout the land, and then the way Saul, it's sort of again the way the text narrates it, it sort of seems like Saul co-ops the messengers, and, and you know, and like, well, no, this is the message you need to be sending, and notice, you know, it goes from being a. Um, you know, Saul takes the message from Jabesh Gilead, which was this plea for help. You know, and at least, um, you know, the people respond by weeping. And Saul takes it and he takes that, that message and makes it a demand. Um, you know, you turn out or your oxen are going to end up like this. So it's no longer, um, you know, come help us. It's now come help us or else. Um, you know, he's giving a, a, an edge, his spur to that. Yeah. Yeah. And it goes from, you know, you know the, the response of, oh, those poor people over there to, I have to do something. You know, God is... Uh, the fear of God has come upon me and I have to act. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think he's pretty confident that there there will be no recourse. Yeah, that uh, again to sort of show the border encroachments um, on in Saul's early kingship. I mean, Saul's kingship, and then under David's, is really, you know, getting the kingdom to the limits that, of what God had given them. You know, trying to restore uh, Israel to the territory that that God had given them in um, Joshua. So you really see that. Uh, the early part of their rule is getting the borders to where they're supposed to be. Yeah, and you really see, um, you know, I, I mean, it's, it's one of those yeah, God's engineering that, um, but the God, the way God is, uh, you know, we're having again multiple accounts of Saul being made king, and each one, you know, so it's God tells Saul, then God. Um, elects Saul, so it's you know he's made king in name, but you get that response to Saul, like you know, you know I remember in President Clinton's, you know, people like he's not my president, you know, and then during um, Bush, the second Bush, well he's not my president, you know, different set of people, and you know, like whether we like the person or not, <laughs> still the one in authority over us, and here we see um, you know Saul. You know whether people liked him or not, um, wanted him to be king or not. We see him, God, making him king. In fact, indeed, um, but doing so in a way that God is demonstrating that He will, even though there's a king. And again, you know, this has been set up with you've rejected me in favor of a king. You know, I. Um, I think it was George said earlier, last time we saw a battle, it was God fighting for Israel. Now we have this battle, and you know it's a human king bringing people together to go out and fight. But God is still with them, still fighting on their behalf. Um, the word salvation um, shows up three times in this chapter. That it's God bringing deliverance and salvation um, to these people. Uh, so at this very uh, moment of the inauguration of the kingship, we, have, we see the process by which Saul is, is moved from being king in name to being king in deed. And we see that even though there's a king, that God hasn't rejected this people, that he is still the one um, who fights for them, delivers them, and the important thing for a king is to acknowledge that fact. That it's not 
my power that's delivered Israel, but it's God's power through me. That's what you want in a king. You want a king who, for all his power and authority, realizes that he's God's lackey. Come here. In two chapters, we're going to see the other side of, you know, they start seeing the negative effects of king. Saul becomes odious in the nostrils of the Philistines, and so they assemble an army to attack Israel. Why? Because of Saul. Um, You know, it's that flip side that, you know, here we're seeing the, you wanted a king, yes, I'll still deliver through you. And then we're going to see, well, but also having a king means, you know, you're going to have people who take your sons and daughters for not righteous reasons. Um, and the king is going to do things that are going to get you in trouble. <laughs> you know, they're, they're not going to say, well, oh, it's just Saul. No, it's Israel, because all of Israel, because of Saul's action. So I, I, I think you're right to sort of, you know, the, the centralization of power here in a single person. You know, God, again, we're seeing it. It's the way God has... Um, has crafted this into the plan all along. We've got stipulations from the king and monarchy and uh, and Deuteronomy, rules for the monarchy, that the king should be a certain way. But then we also have all these attached warnings that Samuel's been been giving us of all the bad things that are going to happen once you have a king and you don't have the direct rule of God anymore. Um, So in chapter 12, um, so here in brief we're sort of given this the story of the uh, renewal um, that uh, the ESV here has the kingdom being renewed, um, uh, but this this re ceremony—good um, grief—I'm making up words up here. Uh, this renewing ceremony, or the ceremony once again making um, Saul king, and we're going to see it. Samuel addressing the people one more time. Uh, next week in chapter 12 and really sort of um, turning over authority. So if the lines are still blurry between, what is it, you know, who's in charge, um, next chapter we'll have another public ceremony making, acknowledging Saul King and Samuel once again sort of, I'm stepping back. Um, but that's next week. So well, we've hit the end of our time, so let me close us in a word of prayer. Trying God, how amazing it is that uh, you have not uh, remained distant from human affairs, that you uh, continue to pursue us even when we have rebelled against you. As Israel has shown here, their, their desire for a king involved a rejection of you. But 
rather than leave them simply to their own devices, um, you raised up the model of, uh, of how kingship should work, how leadership should work, that the ruler should be subservient to you. What a picture we're given here of your actions in history uh, to save your people. That you sent the Son to sacrifice Himself for us. And that you apply that sacrifice to us by the work of your Spirit. That you enable us to respond to the culture around us um, with the same Spirit of God that empowered Saul. Uh, Give us consciousness of the way that you work and move through us. Make us willing to respond uh, to your calls to us to be salt and light in this world. That we would not be content to, um, to stay at home behind our oxen and the plow, but that we would respond uh, appropriately uh, to the many ways that our world needs us, needs the light of your truth to be shown that needs uh, your people to act. Give us that spirit of power, we pray. And we ask it in the name of Christ. Amen.